I'm Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Mike McNeil. As he puts it, I'm Mike McNeil, and I code and make business and stuff. (laughs) Mike is the founder of Sales.js, an open-source project and the most popular model-view controller framework for Node.js. More simply put, he built the modern web app architecture construct for Node. Now he's building FleetDM, a management platform built around OS query. He claims he can reduce your OS query ingestion by a factor of 10 overnight. It was fascinating to talk to Mike about his strong belief in open source and open core, a new topic for the show. And Mike also mentions his admiration for GitLab, feelings that are clearly reciprocated as GitLab CEO Sid invested in Fleet's $20 $20 million Series A raise earlier this year. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about some of the early products that you worked on really over a decade ago. And I really just want to touch on your background and how many different products you've been involved in that really span across a whole host of different technologies, industries, use cases. And we'll eventually get to, to how you came to, to fleet and security specifically. So I think the first one that you kind of publicize is Hey Jukebox, which, as you described it, was kind of a precursor to Google Play Music. Um, So kind of cloud streaming from a library that you actually own. But tell me a little bit more about just the story there and and how it all came together. Yeah, so I mean, that one, uh, it actually, it all started in a computer lab where I was sitting, sitting there uh, doing some work in college and this was before smartphones and cheap storage were like super pervasive and, and the cloud wasn't quite as fast as it is today. Um, I remember running into the problem of, hey, I wish I could stream my music library from home and listen to it here. Right. <laughs> so I don't know if it's probably a little bit of marketing on my part to say that it was the precursor to Google Music. It definitely feature wise, right, was yeah. but definitely not adoption wise. And I remember like calling, I think it was Rackspace and learning about Colo at the time, which is okay. you know, far past that uh, nowadays. But yeah, I mean, the, the key realization there was, I remember it was during South by Southwest. And I remember having the thought process of like, I had never before then put together the idea that companies like Facebook were actually created by somebody <laughs> and that like, I could do that too. Okay. So, I mean, what was the... I mean, was there like a trigger in particular that made you think, oh, these companies were founded by an individual. And so now I'm going to go ahead and, and shoot for the moon. Or was it just kind of like a gradual realization? Was there any point in particular that triggered that? I had just been building Hey Jukebox for fun uh, or not for fun because I, I wanted it right for myself. And then right. it was only the trigger was just like a couple of weeks into that as I started to think about like, how could I market this for other people to use it? And then the yeah. natural thought next was how could I charge for it? <laughs> okay. And so then one thing led to another. Unfortunately, that one did not turn into the next Facebook, but I think that's how a lot of side projects go for for a lot of folks. Um, so what was it like just kind of making the decision after I think it was a year or something like that to go ahead and, and move on to the next project? Just what was it like? Describe that decision making process for you. Yeah. So so I had been uh, in part of this program called Three Day Startup, actually, at, mm. at uh, UT in Austin. Um, which is really helpful because it, it gave some context. It like introduced me to ideas like the lean startup and got me doing some like reading and learning on my own. Um, 
And I very quickly realized that like the hosting costs of this thing are going to be <laughs> crazy right now. I barely even know how to run my own server on anything, right? Let alone like like host other people's data. And you know, I could start thinking about some fancy algorithm for like saying like, you know what, you also have a pirated copy of like Umbop by Hanson or whatever, right? And and but so, like it was just too much it was too much work and it was starting to be very clear that wasn't the right uh that wasn't the right first easy idea to pursue for someone at my skill level, right? <laughs> um, so I, I had met some some folks during three day startup. One of which, you know, when I pitched some in, some investors there who were there, sort of amused, listening to these crazy ideas, um, and I'd gotten you know chewed out appropriately. And I was out in the hallway, sure. and I, I met someone who would later become my lawyer, uh, hmm. which was awesome. Um, who she was real supportive of me at the time, and. Uh, so I kind of started building relationships, learning about other people's ideas and realizing that, look, I want to be kind of like a technical co-founder first in one of these hmm. companies. Um, and then one, yeah, one thing kind of led to another. And, and it was actually when I was working on another project related to uh, volunteering for, for organizations or, or making it easier for nonprofits to get easy access to volunteers hmm. that I realized, wow, there's a lot of companies that just, or there's a lot of organizations, right? Especially nonprofits who are having trouble doing the most basic uh, things with their software, mm -hmm. like getting getting anything automated, um, keeping up with their own websites. Um, okay. And then I started to realize like maybe the right path forward here is for me to start a, a professional services shop mm -hmm. and see if I can help some of these organizations out. And so was that something that you presumably did at that point and say, okay, instead of trying to, to build a product right now, let me go ahead and transition into professional services. And then from there, you ended up jumping back into building a product. So, I mean, tell yeah. me about the next stage of that transition, right? As you move into professional services, you do that for a bit. What's the kind of time period on that? How long were you doing that for? I guess I had just gotten out of, so I got out of college. I was working at a, a job at a startup, actually, as, as an engineer. And uh, and I was kind of working, I was working on a bunch of different ideas in my own time. And, and I sort of accidentally yeah. quit my job and made that jump to professional. <laughs> services right so i was okay. like oh, look why don't i part-time go go start build some websites stuff like that sure. and then you know this role that i'm in i've been building like a bunch of iphone apps a bunch of android apps hmm. it's my first time i ever touched itunes connect and and all that stuff i think they had just renamed it to google play at the time this would have been like okay. 2011. um and so yeah i, I sort of like why don't i go part-time and and i can keep just doing what i've been doing because it's really not now that i've automated a lot of it it's not a full-time job and and they were like well why don't you go no time um, and that's how I became an official real entrepreneur that was using it to pay the rent. Hmm. So professional services from there, I managed to be able to pay rent, which was great for uh, had right. some awesome early customers. And then I guess it was about 2013. I had been I've been really excited about Node.js. Um, yep. I built this. There wasn't an MVC framework for Node like Ruby on Rails. So I built this thing called Sales.js just purely for internal consumption. I was using it on my own projects. I happened to publish it on MD or N NPM. Yeah. And yeah, lo and behold, and it started, it went viral basically in early 2013. <laughs> um, so we became the Sales.js uh, consulting company basically. Uh, we mm. grew to about 15 contractors and employees. And then in 2014, I applied to Y Combinator. Um, got in, and that was actually for a new idea, building a product on top of Sales.js. Hmm. 
And so, again, I guess there's this kind of whole segue back and forth between these two, where the whole time you're doing professional services, you're not doing maybe what like a lot of people in security would think about for professional services, where it's often more like assessments and strategy, like maybe you're doing pen testing, but your professional services were like focused on product development the whole time. It was just a different model. Instead of saying, hey, I'm going to have an idea. I'm going to go and build it. I'm going to get all the customers. You're saying, hey, someone else is going to bring the idea to me. I'm going to go ahead and build it for them. That way I know I have the revenue stream behind it, right? And then again, you have this kind of transition that you're talking about with sales.js and then transitioning that back into kind of the professional services piece and then again, evolving into the product piece. So I'm going to be curious to see how this all comes back together when we talk about just what you've been doing with fleet and device management and and how you've kind of tried to replicate that model, if at all, as far as some of the, the professional services piece. But I also, before we want to move on, want to kind of give you full credit where it's due as far as just the um, exposure that sales.js got. Because like you mentioned, it went viral, but when I was doing a little bit of research into it, I think it's like the most popular uh, model view controller framework for Node, which is no small statement. And so obviously there's kind of this tricky scenario of, hey, it's open source that you went ahead and developed. And then how do I go ahead and monetize on top of this? Uh, but it is clearly a testament to just your technical product building capabilities and being able to, to make a product that was so successful. So, I mean, I'm curious, talking on that point, the the open source decision, right? Was there ever a part of you that was kind of like kicking yourself for making it open source? Or was that always like, hey, this was the right thing to do. And if I'm able to make money on top of it, great. But this was never a part of those original plans. Well, for one thing, you know, I don't want to take all the credit because a lot of what made that particular project successful is that, at least at the beginning, was the fact that I wasn't the only person Googling Node.js MVC framework, right. and I wasn't the only person who was expecting to find something that rhymed with Rails, right? <laughs> so a lot of it, you, you know, a lot of that early momentum really came from the fact that there were people out there that were doing the same thing I was, and, and I was the user, right? So I understood right. it. Ultimately, what I what I needed from like a marketing perspective to to buy into something like this, and also from a increasingly, I became the right person to know what was needed from a product perspective, mm -hmm. right? Um, in terms of features, um, so I think I think with with SalesJS, I never kicked myself that it was open source because that's what I would have needed as a developer, mm -hmm. right? Um, sure. Going back to security and IT these days. We're seeing more and more code literate people get into security and IT. Yeah, um, and I think that coincidentally, uh, open source is on the rise in security and IT. And I think we have to we have to look at that and say there's probably a connection here, right? Developers yeah. like to pick things that they can see the source code for that they think they could modify it, right? Like it's not that I necessarily am going to go modify like GitLab, but knowing that I can go look at it and then I might, right, is super valuable to me. Um, so I think with SalesJS, major failure in terms of monetization. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, but but big success in terms of solving needs for users. Um, right. Which really was, hey, I just need an easier way to go build something that's as simple as possible and makes me learn as little details as possible except what I need to achieve my goals. Hmm. So I feel like we're foreshadowing um, some elements that might come out with Fleet here. Right. You've talked about the 
like, hey, I was a user of this and I wanted, like I faced this problem. And so I wanted to go ahead and, and solve it myself. Obviously I see that all the time with su successful founders is they have to be passionate about that problem because it was something that they ran into themselves. Uh, so, I mean, tell me a little bit more about that. You ended up uh, joining and kind of starting fleet device management in 2020. Um, so you'd done sales JS for, I think, seven or eight years at that point and said, maybe we didn't nail the monetization on this last one. Let's go ahead and, and try something else. And again, uh, sales JS is built on OS query. So still kind of keeping this attachment towards open source projects. Again, I have some ideas as far as how this all came together with your love of open source and being a contributor and then trying to build a monetization model on top of it. But let me hear it in, in your words, just how this whole transition came about and the decision to, to launch FleetDM. So we had run out of money with the SalesJS projects uh, mm. long, long ago, right? Back in 2016. <laughs> okay. And what I had done to keep things alive was go back to doing professional services. And at this okay. time, I, I was a YC founder, right? And so I'd, I'd gone through that whole kind of boot camp of like learning to like just talk to users obsessively, like really focus on tiny iterative improvements, doing things that don't scale, going out and doing user acquisition any way you can, right? Um, and I think, I think that was really, really helpful in what came next because then what I did for the next few years was just built a bunch of projects, went way <laughs> deeper than we had ever done in the past, managed to get the company profitable again, just doing that. Wow. Um, and the company is still in existence. SalesJS actually has revenue. It's being supported by, uh, you know, I think we have either one or two support customers right now. It's not, it's a trickle, mm -hmm. right? But it pays for its own website hosting. Um, right. And it and it takes, at this point, none of my time other than I think a, a weekly 30 minutes uh, that I spend. And actually there's more on that Pretty in good. the YouTube video. Which okay. is great. Yeah. Like, I mean, we figured out how to get open source running smoothly and we figured out how to, I think during that same time, uh, I learned how to be a better manager, learned how to like run companies a little bit better and also just run a product development process a little bit better, a little bit more empathetically. Um, so anyways, fast forward to like 2020, um, I, I meet Zach. We're actually introduced by Stitzy Brandy from GitLab, who was in the mm -hmm. same Y Combinator batch as me. Um, so GitLab, you know, bought our office furniture, right? When we moved away from California back to Austin, Texas. And uh, anyway, so 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 uh, Zach and I meet, and one of the things from the SalesJS project is I had built this ORM, uh, you know, if you're an ORM, which is a way to talk to the database uh, that's easier than writing SQL queries by themselves, right? Hmm. But uh, a key piece of doing that was this realization that, like, there's really nothing about this that, it, that says it has to be a database, right? You can find data using the same kind of interface from Twitter, right, or from any API. Hmm, um, sure. We could use it to detect the state of a lamp that's on or off. I remember we saw it an extension cord in half once, and we used the ORM to, like, turn on and off a lamp, right? Huh. Um, that That was always really exciting to me and something I never got to invest as much time in as I wanted. And so when Zach started telling me about like OS query and about how it was a way to do that to computers, like in general, and be able to like fetch data from anywhere on the, the laptop or the server and like create this abstraction of SQL tables, except like way better than I was thinking of doing it, where it actually uses the SQLite query engine and like it lets you join and do subqueries and uh, it's just really, really neat. So I got really excited uh, immediately from that. Um, 
And then I also, after having kind of talked to Sid more, I learned uh, more about how to do a, a more effective open core business model. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with kind of those two pieces, this was just like, this is definitely what I'm doing next. Um, and so Zach and I got together. We didn't actually meet in person for months um, okay. after that point. So we, we actually got to our almost probably first half million in revenue before we ever met face to face. Wow. That's a, that's a pretty good testament. I think both on the, the timeline of building that first half million in revenue and from a, uh, just team management standpoint. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's worth for the, the listeners, maybe diving into OS query just a little bit more and talking about like what it is that OS query is trying to accomplish. And obviously you're going to be more of an expert on this than I am, but the maybe 10 second version is essentially providing telemetry into all the different devices and, and endpoints on your network. So commonly used in security operation centers, try to capture that telemetry, forwarding it out to a SIM. Uh, so that way security analysts can go ahead and consume logs from those endpoints in a standardized fashion across uh, again, across an entire ecosystem. So anything in particular you'd add as far as like key elements of OS query? I mean, I think the the SQL backend structure seems to be a, a kind of important one as we talk about just digesting that data, but anything else? No, you nailed it. I mean, there's there's more, there's actually a, a good podcast that Zach did where he goes uh, with Mike Arpaia, they, they work together at Facebook and he talks about like mm. some of the motivations. And that's really interesting if you're just trying to get that historical context for where kind of security sure. has been coming from and where it's going. Um, so I won't go into that here, but I think a more maybe what I can just add is uh, on top of what you said, one thing that a lot of people find value in is FIM or file integrity monitoring. So being hmm. able to use OS Query to actually monitor for changes on disks to certain files, um, especially helpful on servers, right, where you don't want the files changing or if they do, it's weird. Um, <laughs> And then the other thing is just, you know, why, why you would be doing this in the first place today. Um, and, and that's really, I think, because you want, you want that data to augment what you already have in your SIM, right? Like maybe sure. you're getting some data from your EDR um, and maybe you have some, like, some existing solutions floating around your network that feeds you some data. Um, but you are missing like the ability to get custom fine-grained access to specific pieces of data on the computers, mm-hmm. right? So maybe that's like you want all process events or you're wanting to get in- involved with uh, eBPF. Like maybe you're using some other kind of uh, framework to look at activity and to do some more advanced security detections. Um, that's all like whatever you end up trying to do at the end of the day in your SIM is, is something you're going to want to have more data than just what OS Query gives you. But when it comes to like getting the actual reality of what's living on that endpoint, OS Query is one of the most flexible and kind of fine-grained ways that you can uh, get exactly the data you need. Right. No, I think that's a, a great summary as far as kind of the, the use cases in different organizations. And I mean, I've seen things in the past, right, where like a big enterprise might have an EDR system for some of their ecosystem, like, for example, let's say all Windows endpoints, but then they don't have a solution for their Mac endpoints. So they end up relying on something like OS Query to go ahead and capture additional telemetry um, until they can find like a, a contract with a different EDR system to help bridge that gap. And then to your point, maybe they have OS Query tailored for specific event types there as well that that they want to ensure that they monitor. Now, one of the things I'm curious about, right, is a common challenge in just security monitoring in general is the volume of data that's being ingested from all these various sources. And so I've worked with several companies in the past uh, who've just expressed some hesitations or frustrations 
around OS Query because of how much data they're getting into their SIM. And obviously a big piece of that is how are they tailoring it? What are some of the other supporting tools in their ecosystem? What are the rules that they're building within the SIM to make sure that they're only triggering on like actually malicious events as opposed to uh, the the broader swath of events that they're going to get from something like an OS query? So, I mean, what's your perspective on that problem and and maybe how the security industry as a whole is trying to address that? So... OS query will give you whatever you ask it for, right? Um, right. So you can just go, you can go find a bunch of community um, queries online, copy and paste hmm. them or, or run, you know, fleet control apply and, and add them to your, to your fleet instance and start running them on all of your hosts. Um, and you can start pumping the data out directly to your SIM. And a lot of folks get that far uh, and they're like, <laughs> We got our data, right? And that's kind of step one. Um, despite the SIM uh, data usage costs being as high as they are, um, you know, whether or not it's like a true SIM or you're using some other data platform like a SIM, um, you know, usage-based pricing is, is kind of where we're at, right? And it's the yep. future of that world. So I think people uh, have to make a choice when they use OS Query about, or when they use any solution, right? Um, sure. And this is actually informed by the by the developer side, like you know, picking a framework, picking a picking a library, kind of thing too. Um, you're always you're always like doing a trade off between like I'm accepting someone else's mental model, um, and I'm also accepting hopefully the support that they're providing for that like mental model and way of thinking about. Uh, whatever it is, in this case, pulling data out of my devices. And uh, I mean, the cool thing with OS Query is that you you can, you can you can cut out all of that and get just what you want. But the reality is that there's just not, you know, most of the time, if you can get other existing queries that are out there, you're gonna start from those. Um, right. So I think a lot of folks will grab those queries, start sucking out data and then optimizing back to basically cut out what they aren't actually using. Interesting. Some of the companies that we've seen be most effective with their strategy um, is to have basically have security engineers who are looking at these queries, deciding like, what is it that we actually need to do the detections we want to build? Um, and, and ideally, kind of in the same way you might wireframe a user interface before you go code it up. <laughs> sure. They're kind of thinking about, like, here's, here's what I want to actually detect. Let me go use my analysis, right? Me, the security engineer, or me, the CISO, or, or whoever's driving that strategy, depending on how big you are. Um, and let's go, let me go find the queries that, that I think make sense um, and and get the data for that. So I think I think a lot of it is, it goes back to just, do you, uh, do you get more data than you need and sort it out later? Or do we just ask just the questions that we need answers for? Right. Yeah, I think it's a really good delineation of those two different scenarios, right? And I think one of the problems that a lot of organizations run into is they might have security engineers who are familiar with rule writing in their sim right if they're using splunk for example they can go ahead and write a splunk query but if they then need to go ahead and learn os query syntax as well and now they're starting to manage rules in different places they have some rules at the sim level they have some rules at the os query level and maybe the rule at the os query level is just an event type but ultimately it's going to impact the types of uh, security events that you have insight into right and so all of a sudden these are going to be somewhat coupled with the security rules that you're developing and again so more than anything that's just creating more overhead uh, for that that security analyst team i mean 
as I think about that scenario a little bit more, are you saying that kind of the, the main reason companies opt for that approach is really to reduce the usage for the SIM and, and just the, the volume of data that's coming in and, and the costs that come along with that? I think that can be a justification for sure. Sure. I think it, it, uh, it definitely has uh, done that. You know, we've seen, uh, we've seen companies go from, I think I forget how many terabytes of OS query data down to like a hundred megabytes in terms of, I'm talking wow. like volume per month um, in just wow. spending, spending like two days, right? Like <laughs> cutting back to be like, we don't need every event that's ever happened. Um, nor do you necessarily even want to store all that, right? Um, right. For lots of reasons. But I think I think what motivates a lot of companies that are really leaning in heavily to OS Query, like Atlassian, um, is they they look at whatever choice they're going to make for the next three years for for vendors or open source tools. And at this point, most EDR vendors are using OS Query under the hood anyway. Um, and so when you look at what's a what's a kind of portable format that's going to put me in control of my own strategy. OS Query is a pretty great option. Like it's SQL, so it's a language that's been around since the '70s in terms of what you're specifying. Like, um, and then the results you're getting back are shaped in a consistent way. You know, OS Query is, has enough adoption that it's versioned. You're not going to get some random vendor surprise. Um, there's still all kinds of uh, spots in OS Query that need some love, and like if we were investing heavily in that because we realize, uh, you know making the user experience as good as possible of, of OS Query itself um, is is going to kind of lift all boats, sort of. Right. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think I think we have we have two folks working on that full time right now, uh, and we are hiring for a third. Hmm. Um, and I think even then, I th it'll probably take, you know, before we can look at every single table and say that that is the exact user experience, the developer experience we want, that'll probably always be a moving target. Sure. Um, but I think we're getting a lot closer lately. And I guess for anyone that checked out OS Query like maybe two or three years ago, I would really recommend, even six months ago, I would recommend having a look now, especially on hmm. Mac OS. There's a lot of really cool stuff. Interesting. And I want to dive more into that, that statement that you made about reducing 100 terabytes of monthly data into 100 megabytes in just a couple of days, because I think there's probably some folks who are listening and, and heard that and their ears just immediately perked up uh, because the amount of savings that comes along with that is incredible. And what that's really going to open up for your security budget to be able to repurpose some of that spend in different areas is, again, pretty incredible in itself. So I, I'm curious, what's the approach when you go through that process? I mean, it sounds like part of it is just scoping your use cases effectively and saying, hey, here's what we actually need. And so let's go ahead and just make sure that we only have those queries turned on. But there are there any other kind of like, hey, here are the top three things for someone using OS query to go ahead and, and take a look at and make sure that like these flags are turned off, for example, or like the retention that you're setting is something that you look into. Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll answer that specifically, and then I'll zoom out a little bit, and hope I won't get Perfect. too on you. But the so the thing I would look at first, right? If you're using OS Query today, and you're like, "Wow, it's a lot of data," the first thing is that you might have a bit of an organizational rift you need to to heal, right? Between the people that are in the in the sim and the people that are defining those queries. Um, one thing we've learned about at Fleet is is it's really important to get the people that are that are 
getting the result of, of the questions you're asking, like that are receiving those answers, mm-hmm. uh, to be communicating with the people that are asking those questions. Right. Um, otherwise, how can you really ever be successful? Obviously, that's the number one problem that we've seen is just the, the people on the receiving end are not the same people on the asking end, and they're not, mm-hmm. they're not communicating. Um, so we added some features around that, specifically this thing called Teams, because um, we realized the easier we made it to get folks into actually seeing OS Query, you know, we have a little ace editor that shows up in the browser um mm-hmm. which you also don't have to use you can use you know get ops and you can put it all in yaml and use your existing sure. pull request process um but being able to add observers kind of at will you can even let your it help desk in look at the queries even run queries that have been like allow listed as hey that's not going to shut down and freeze everybody's mouse cursors um but also just your security analyst right like letting them see like okay from whence did this data come and like, what is the question we're asking? Like, you don't even have to necessarily empower those people to do edits, although that's even better. But if you can give those folks just just visibility into like what kind of questions are being asked, then they can do a lot better job being like, oh, okay, I know what produced this data that I'm looking at, and I can uh, I can make the most of it. I can also say, hey, we don't need this data. You don't need to be asking right. that question, right? Um, and I think specifically for OS Query, the uh, the evented tables are ones that can very, very quickly sprawl the amount of data that you're mm-hmm. consuming um, or producing, right, from OS Query and then consuming in your sim. Right, so we've right. seen people get the, a lot of benefit after cu- um, cutting down on the use of evented tables to being what they actually need to, um, to do the detections that they want to build. Interesting. So, I mean, I think we've hinted at a lot of the kind of like specific benefits that you set out to build when you decided to tackle this project for fleet device management. But like thinking through everything you've described, it feels almost like more of a professional services focus, right? Because everything that you're describing, like that process of saying, hey, here's what you need, here's what you don't need, that seems like the classic approach or process for a consulting project. So I think part of what you've touched on here as well is some of the like UI benefits and just, again, that that ORM in terms of uh, making this data more accessible. But I'm curious to hear again, like thinking back a couple years ago when you decided to, to really kick this off, what were like the top three goals that you said, hey, if we can do these three things, we're succeeding as a company and customers are going to be interested? Mm. So we knew we knew we needed, and I'll, I'll drop a link uh, for you, Kyle, so we can put this in the show notes. But Perfect. there's uh, there's this great talk that Sid C. Brandy from GitLab does, where he talks about like how they landed on Open Open Core, hmm. uh, and it's awesome because he goes through like you know when they first hit Hacker News, he's getting his pancakes, right, <laughs> or he's making pancakes, um, and kind of like what it took to get there, right, going from trying literally every monetization strategy that they could they could think of right um and adoption strategy that they could think of um and it's super super relevant if you've ever built open source or even just had a small community package that kind of got popular Hmm. um so one of the things came out of that with this company was like we uh, zach and i both knew going in we we had to have a actual product that people wanted to pay for this could not just be services and support. It needed to have right. paid features that that mattered, um, and uh, and so and so we very quickly worked towards that. That was that was one of the kind of the first goals is like get a licensing thing built in so that there's a reason. Like companies need a, uh, a justification to to pay for open source, um, mm-hmm. and also it's there's the value in those features that 
it's just hard to get over the psychology of like, oh, I love I love those guys. I just want to give them money for no reason, right? <laughs> I, or I want to, I want to talk to them more. Um, so and that that can't be your business model, right? So yeah. that was part of it. Um, the other thing is we knew that quality and user experience and developer experience were going to be really really important. Um, so that comes mostly first and foremost just putting ourselves in our users' shoes and talking to users as much as possible. Mm get to where we understood, uh, you know, I guess that might be where the connection to kind of the professional services world and uh, can sound like that's what we're doing, but there's a pretty big difference in terms of like, you know, we're not going to, just because someone gives us some feedback doesn't mean that we're going to do exactly that in the product, <laughs> sure, um, sure. but it influences, it allows us to have better empathy. Um, and we've really tried to have a culture at our company where everybody is thinking about the user all the time, be it the customer or the free user, it doesn't matter, but the sure. people that are actually using the platform. And so maybe can you just expand a little bit more on like the specific use cases that Fleet DM is solving on top of OS query? So like, what is that specific advantage that users get when they transition from just like basic open source, open... OS query uh, towards the the fleet DM package on top of it. Yeah, so so OS query is an agent, right? It's a daemon. It runs in the background yep. on your. You have OS query deinstalled, and and you uh, you got it on there somehow, right? If you're at a big company, they might have used like Chef or Puppet or Ansible to kind of blast yep. it out to you. Or if if it's if it's a laptop we're talking about rather than a server, maybe you got it via their MDM like Jam for Kanji, um, Workspace One, Intune, something like that. Um, so you have the daemon running and it got deployed onto your computer. Now you have to send that data somewhere. Right. And out of the box, OS Query doesn't do that at all. OS Query is just the agent. So you need a TLS server to receive incoming data and also to be able to ask questions via live queries for incident response use cases or just kind mm -hmm. of ad hoc questions you might have, right, about your fleet. Um, and fleet is the platform that enables that. Hmm. Um, and that's and that's all free. So everything I just said, you can do for free. You can send data right. to your sim for free. The paid features are a lot more about giving additional access, especially when you have multiple teams that need to get into the products um, to kind of lock things down a little bit more. Control with granular permissions, um, sure. what people can do in the platform, um, and then also to be able to kind of segment your fleet more and say like, okay, those are the computers that have, or those are my laptops that have like a root access to our production infrastructure. Um, maybe those are the laptops that have, uh, you know, maybe just IT support, not even IT support, just general support use cases, more likely to uh, get exposed to all kinds of different uh, tools, right? Um, maybe even you have a few laptops on your security team with people that adopt, uh, they're kind of in sandbox mode and they try things out first. Sure. Um, so to be able to kind of partition your fleet in that way, that that's part of fleet premium today. And so the more I'm thinking about this, the more I'm thinking it's kind of separate from like the monitoring use case that sims are focused on, right? It sounds like it's more focused on what are some of the kind of like long-standing um, like metadata about each of these different devices that are relevant for security purposes. So rather than saying, hey, fleet, is enabling you or or kind of your central monitoring hub for like malicious activity across your ecosystem you're saying no well that's really still going to be more the sim this is more for that kind of 
um, hey, we want to go ahead and clean up our device ecosystem and understand uh, like which endpoints uh, the users have root on, I think was the example you gave. And that allows security to go ahead and do cleanup in a very uh, targeted basis, as opposed to having to reactively respond to some of those alerts. Am I getting that all right? Yeah, I think I think that's fair. And I think I think using those and once you have those delineations set up, using them to be able to have different data collection rules based sure. on those, those use cases, because maybe you don't need to collect as much data from computers that don't have access to production cloud infrastructure. Maybe you don't yeah. need all that to flow to your sim. Um, maybe you don't want to necessarily monitor for vulnerabilities as closely. Like if someone's Figma desktop app has a unusual vulnerability in it, like how much does that matter, right? Well, it matters a lot, like what they have access to, right? If it's right. just if it's a laptop they open once a year to do some testing and they maybe browse the internet, it's like it's risk, but it's pretty low risk. Like you'd have to have a, a compromised Nintendo Switch on the network that like sends a like somehow manages to get yeah, on the sure. computer with like a open port or something, you know. So it's it's a lot more of a jumping through hoops to to see why it's a risk, but um, that all changes depending on the context. Yeah, I think going back to, to what we talked about previously, right, the additional overhead that comes for security analysts when they have to write rules for all these different scenarios, I think what you just touched on there is, is super important in terms of, of telling that, that value story. Um, just in, hey, you can go ahead and write rules in this one place and we'll dynamically go ahead and kind of push those out to the different device types. And so that way you can be sure that the information that you're collecting from even different device types um, at like a very granular level is specific to those devices and, and you're limiting that ingestion um, for the, the data usage point as well. So um, no, that that totally makes sense to me. And it's a win from a privacy perspective too, right? Because the other cost aside from the, you know, the, the SIM cost and the, the electricity that you're using to like crank all this data over the, over the internet is you also are storing people's data and they're on their work machines, hopefully, you know, uh, sometimes you'll have uh, BYOD devices enrolled as well. But, um, you know, you want to you want to be transparent with people about what you're monitoring. And it's really hard to be transparent if you're just collecting everything under the sun. Um, yeah. Right. So a thing we've, we're trying to achieve with Fleet is to make it as easy as possible for employers, especially when it comes to monitoring laptops. Right to tell employees, hey, this is like what we capture and kind of here's why we're not trying to just get you in trouble because I don't know, we're not trying to like peer into your medical history or see like what pictures of your kids are on your desktop. Like these are the goals. This is like literally what we can see. Um, and this is what we're gonna do with the data. Um, and we're seeing that becoming more and more important to to users, kind of, and employees everywhere. Um, even I think New York just passed a law related to this, actually. Hmm. Yeah, and I was going to say that's a that's a great point because there is this trend uh, as a whole that customers are increasingly valuing their privacy when they purchase a product or when they use a platform. And I think to your point, there the next step of that is employees starting to take more care in how their company handles their personal data. I know there have been companies I've worked with in the past that have like browser monitoring software installed on all their endpoints, and it doesn't seem like their users, their employees really know about that. And so you create this kind of lack of trust where that monitoring information is hidden and more of like an, an us against you 
scenario, which is obviously not what you want for your employees. So being able to have that granular level of detail, where you're able to confidently say, hey, this is what we're collecting. It's following the idea of like, this is as little, this is as much as we need um, and nothing more. And uh, yeah, and I think to your point, that can that can win good faith with some of the employees. So I really appreciate all the time as far as just walking through this in a bit more detail. I think for a lot of folks who are just interested in security monitoring, super relevant just to understand a little bit more like how OS query is really working behind the scenes and uh, how some of these different tool ecosystems exist around it in order to maximize its value. Ceremonial last question for you here. I know you knew it's coming. Uh, are you currently looking for investment or hiring? So we're all, we, the tank's full in terms of uh, investment, um, but Great. if you are interested in working on Fleet or OS Query, um, you know, we have jobs on fleetdm.com, the website. Um, and we also, we actually, separately from Fleet, we have another Twitter handle called OS Query Jobs. So hmm. if you're someone who wants to work on OS Query just in your in your day-to-day -day work, regardless of whether you're contributing to it or not, um, check out OS Query Jobs on Twitter. Um, we posts i think twice a week on there just kind of some of the best job postings that jump out to us um, <laughs> from around the the industry and uh, but yeah the the look on our website and otherwise just feel free to jump on a github because it's even if you're not someone who knows c++ and you want to contribute to os query core um there's our docs even our company <laughs> handbook is all open source it's all online um and there's an edit button as often as possible on every page um all of the source code for fleet is editable the back end is uh, go and the front end is react base hmm. so if you've used any of those technologies or you want to learn um we'd love to have your contributions awesome awesome well again thank you so much for your time mike really appreciate the conversation thanks kyle it's fun thanks so much for listening to this episode you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io i'm kyle mcnulty and you've been listening to secure ventures